oh, can we just acknowledge that this is just quite strange to be here and having to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing with everything that's going on. It just, yeah, it just feels very strange. But my hope is this morning that we would just see how good God is, how good he has been to us, despite everything that has gone on. And so to do this, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. And my hope is this morning is that the the nativity scene that we know so well, imagine that is like Harris Tweed. That nativity scene that is kind of warm and fuzzy to touch, that there is a warmth to it, that is elegant, really well designed. Sometimes unhelpfully, but on the whole, it's actually rightly like that because this is God coming down, humbling himself to humanity, his passionate pursuit of loving the world and stepping in. And if the nativity scene is like Harris Tweed, what I want to do this morning is take a step behind and look at all the cogs. I want to look at the loom. I've got a friend who is a weaver, who's one of the youngest Harris Tweed weavers um, a couple of years ago. And I want to step behind the three wise men, the angels, all these different things, and look at the cogs and how God brings about that picture of the nativity scene. We're going to see just the shuttle move back and forth as God works his way through human history to bring about that baby in a manger. And so to do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. I've got a couple of um, slides to help us just read through this because as you will look at it, you will think, wow, that looks boring. That is a long genealogy of names. And I'm not taking anything out. I've just used the words from the Bible, but I've set it up in a way that a genealogy would work in my mind. And so hopefully it helps us to understand um, what is going on. What I want to say is is that though it looks like Matthew starts in a boring way, I want to say Matthew starts large. He couldn't start in a bigger way than he does. And we will see how faithful has God has been in the foreword of what Matthew has to say. I'm going to pray just before I read for God's help. And then I'll read through it and Leanna will click through some of the slides for us. Loving Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you bless, that we would bless the Lord, O my soul. We pray that our soul would sing the wonders of how you have worked in the darkest of times. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Minadab the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, 
sorry, I say that in a very Ireland accent. Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Go on, next one. There we go. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azer. Azer, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thank you, Liana. Brilliant. Well, why does Matthew start in such a long-winded, boring way? Well, there's three things. Firstly, for, for the Jews, this would not be boring. This was more exciting. We're going to oversell it as if it was very exciting, but it was more exciting than it seems to us to know who Jesus was and where he came from. And Matthew uses it because he wants to use the genealogy to authenticate just who Jesus is, that he is the real deal, that he is the savior king who has come to save the world. And for us, this genealogy shows us how God works in mysterious ways in the darkest, most distressing times of human history. In the people that Matthew has chosen to use, he is deliberately wanting us to know how God works. And so to run through this this morning, if you're taking notes, I have three headings and they all have the word seed. And it is that Jesus is the seed of David. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the seed of sinners. And then right at the end, we'll just see that this is a seed that is to be scattered. There are the four points for this morning. That Jesus is the seed of David, Abraham, sinners, and then to be scattered. So seed of Abraham, look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And to us, this doesn't mean a lot but to the Jewish first reader, it really, really wouldn't. I've got, a, I've got a quiz for you guys right now who are in the room. If you're at home, you can try and guess. If I was to do a tune, I'm going to try and get it right as I, as I do it. Would you be able to guess where this is from? Do, 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 do. Anyone? 
Home Alone, absolutely. It is the tune to Home Alone. And Home Alone makes us think of Christmas. Home Alone makes us kind of feel just warm and fuzzy as we hear the tune. This happened the other day when we were driving in the car and the tune came on. It just made me feel that Christmas was finally coming. Now for the Jews, this is what happens when they hear the word son of David and son of Abraham. It has so much, con- so many connotations that we don't always pick up. And that's because we don't know our Bibles as well as the Jews would have known their Bibles in first century. Because the son of David was synonymous with the messianic deliverer. So whenever they heard the word son of David, they thought Messiah. They thought the one who was going to rescue them, this great rescuing king. So this list starts not with kind of the kindred of who Jesus came from, but that the long-awaited liberator was finally here. This is who Jesus was. He is this hero figure who has been prophesied about in the Old Testament. As one of the Reamer Kids kids put it last week, he is the forever king. That is the phrase that comes to mind. And so why did they think this? Why did they think son of David meant messianic deliverer? If you have your Bibles, flick to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to look back at two Old Testament passages this morning just to kind of get our minds into this. And the words should appear on the screen behind me. 2 Samuel 7. And let me just explain the context of what happens here. As I get there, 2 Samuel 7, David sees all that he has and all that God has done for him. And he's in this lovely palace. And it's almost this kind of comedic conversation between God and David. David says, I have this big palace. I need to build you a temple. You're just, God, you are dwelling in a tent still in this tabernacle. I need to build you a house. To which God says, no, no, no. I will build you a house. Not necessarily a physical house, but a symbolic dynasty. Read with me 2 Samuel 12 to 17. Listen to the promise that God makes for David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17. When your days are fulfilled, God says, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And listen to this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God says to David, I am going to bring someone up in your lineage who will have this kingdom that will never end. And if you read through the rest of 2 Samuel and Kings, you will see that 
It does not come quickly. His son and his sons and his sons go from bad to worse. But God promises that there will be a king on a throne that will last forever. And so if you flick back to Matthew 1, you will see that Matthew wastes no time. In his first 12 words, he couldn't start in a quicker way. He says, essentially, let me tell you about the Messiah you've been waiting for. That is how he starts his book when he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That baby born in a manger is the forever king God has promised. And if we carry on reading through the Bible, we will see that this kingdom in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is one where there is no illness, no despair, no sin, no brokenness. There's this future aspect to it. And you read elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus in Acts 2 is seated at the right hand of God in his kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. And as we read through in Luke, we will see that God, we have seen that Jesus preaches the good news of the kingdom. And we just see it breaking in through the brokenness and fixing the disorder of the world and fixing the disease and death that is there. We see glimpses of what it will look like. And this kingdom is this future kingdom that we can hold on to that will last forever. And we see later in this book that the seed of David brings about this kingdom possibility that comes. This possibility of this kingdom by going to the cross for us. The seed of David is about this forever king with a kingdom that will last forever. So that's the first seed that we've looked at, that David, the son of David, that's who Jesus is. He's the seed of David. The second one is that he is the seed of Abraham. And if you have your Bibles, flick to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And we're going to look at more promises that are coming about through the seed of Abraham as with the seed of David. We're actually going to look at Genesis 12 to 26 next term. So I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time on it. But I just want to look at the promises God makes to Abraham about someone who is coming in his lineage. Right at the start of Abraham's life, God not his life, the story of Abraham as we have him in the Bible. God says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, he makes three promises. See if you can spot them. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we see right at the start of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12 is that someone is coming from Abraham's seed who will bring about a land, a people, and a blessing. A land, a people, and a blessing. And as a church, we looked at Exodus 
which is the next book that comes after Genesis, and we see that they have multiplied many, many times. And there, so there are many people. We see at the end of Exodus, they are on this way to this promised land. So that's two of the three ticked. And sometimes there is blessing, but it's a bit iffy. And it doesn't really fit with what goes on. And so when Matthew starts in Matthew 1 saying, son of David, he's talking about this forever king. When he talks of son of Abraham, it is this king who is going to bless people. Bless people. Blessing is kind of sometimes a vague term that we aren't fully sure what it is. So let me give you some definitions. Blessedness is to know God is ours and have truly abundant life. In the Greek, the word means to be fully satisfied. Blessing the opposite of curse. It's God's relational presence in our life. So when Matthew starts with son of David, son of Abraham, it is huge. And we see what Jesus brings. And the way that the the, the storyline of the Bible works is that Abraham has these promises back in Genesis 12, and you have the blessing of land people, the promises of land people and blessing. And as the Bible goes on, it's kind of like a kaleidoscope, but it kind of sharpens in focus. And we see when David's promise comes later that the land people and blessing is going to come through a king, a king whose kingdom will never end. So in Matthew chapter 1, we don't have these fanciful stories of Jesus appearing out of nowhere as some kind of Santa Claus figure. We have the story of God's faithfulness to his own promises that he has made hundreds of years beforehand. His utter relentless pursuit of his undeserved promises to a rebellious people. And he's kept it. God's faithfulness to his promises that crystallize in that baby in a manger. Think back to that idea of the loom with the shuttles moving back and forward. The picture starts to crystallize in this nativity scene. And what we see through this is how God makes that possible. If you imagine the thread golden running right through the picture, going back and forward, not how we would expect and not what we had planned, but how God works together for our good and for his glory. And this means for us that Jesus is that blessing bringing king. He will be enthroned forever. He will be the one who restores our relationship with a father who has doggedly, lovingly brought about our relationship with him, that soul-satisfying balm to an open wound of pain and suffering. And as I said, as you read through the book of Matthew, we have the promises kind of beginning to be fulfilled, but not until the end of the book do we see how we receive blessing, how we receive relationship with God. This forever king is crowned on the cross. He's not 
crowned kind of with the like the queen would be with kind of all this pomp and gold and prestige. No, he is spat at, abused and crowned with thorns. It's not an inauguration like we see with Donald Trump or with Barack Obama with hundreds of thousands of people gathered. No, no, no. All alone, deserted and forsaken. We see the promises beginning to be fulfilled here, but at the cross is where they become a reality for you and for me. God lowered himself to earth, lowered himself to be bruised so that the kingdom might be a reality for us. What we see is that God brings about God's relationship through God's gift to God's people by God's grace. It is all God who does this. He is faithful to the end. And what this means for us is that Jesus is leading us to a promised land where there will be a multitude of people singing all in different languages. Glory to God in the highest where there will be blessing which is relationship with him. Jesus is the seed of David. He is the seed of Abraham. And then we're going to see how God works through. I'm not going to run through all these names in the same detail that I've done. I'm actually going to pick just a couple of them just so we can see and get a flavor of what goes on. Because Jesus is the seed of sinners. Now, this list here is not a boring list, but is about authenticating Jesus. It's actually not even an exhaustive list. It was quite common in Jewish culture to pick names for deliberate reasons in the lineage so that we might know something about it, so we might know Matthew's point. And as you read through these names, or as I read through them, you might know some of them. They appear in Chronicles and in Kings. But from Abiud in verse 13, actually there's no real biblical reference to that. It's a period that we don't have in the Bible but there will be names that we know and some that we don't. And what we want to know is, is why Matthew picked the names that he picked. What is it he's trying to tell us? So let's look through these names just now. If you look at verse 9, you'll see the name Ahaz. This is just a random couple of names that I want to pick so we can see what's going on. Ahaz in verse 9, the father of Hezekiah, who's the son of Jotham. And if I just read you what he is like from 2 Kings 16 verse 2, we'll get a picture of what's going on. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign as king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Matthew wants us to know the pedigree of the people that Jesus comes from. He wants us to know just how sinful they actually are. The evil that goes on in this lineage. Because he wants us to know that God kept the promises that he made all the way through the evil, the muck, the mess of the world. 
to bring about his good. And it's not just singular names. If you look down at verse 12, you will see that it was just Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And the deportation was the exile. So it wasn't just that there was bad leaders from time to time where there was all the way through this list. It's actually that the people of Israel as a whole were bad. They were all bad eggs. Israel was warned earlier in Deuteronomy that if they didn't follow God, didn't follow his ways, then they would be sent out of the promised land. It says in Deuteronomy, choose life, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. But if you do not, you shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. They chose to worship idols. They chose to disregard God and his ways. And Matthew leaves it in here so that we see this smudge, this irremovable smudge from the history of Israel and how God worked right through that to still bring about his promises. He is faithful to the uttermost. In the exile, Israel was taken captive to Babylon. Jerusalem was desecrated and burned to the ground. And Matthew wants us to know that it is not just a bad lineage, it is the whole nation of Israel that absolutely stinks. No one lives up to the standard of God. There is evil and there is mess, but he keeps bringing about his promises. And the third thing that I want to look at is I wonder if you noticed the the names of women in this list. If you look at verse 3, you will see Tamar, who is the mother of Perez and Zerah with Judah. If you look at verse 5, you will see Boaz by Rahab. Boaz is born by Rahab. You will see Obed was born by Ruth. And you will see verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And I say this because women were not normally in genealogies in first century Israel. And so Matthew has left that in or put that in because he wants to make a point. Now what is that point? Firstly, it is that, that God works through outsiders, so ethnically outside people, people who were not part of Israel. You will see um, Rahab was in Joshua chapter 6, was a woman from Jericho who turned to God, who was a prostitute. You will see Ruth, who was not an Israelite in verse 5. She was this outsider that God chose to work with. But it's not just that. God works with the outsiders ethnically. I wonder if you remember, if you know your Bible as well, verse 3, Tamar, from Genesis chapter 30. It's one of those ones that if you're preaching through Genesis, you kind of want to skip over because it is brutal in what it says. Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. And what happens in Genesis chapter 38 is Judah sleeps with a prostitute, not knowing that it is his daughter-in-law. And that is how Perez and Zerah are born. It's this hideous stain you would not want on your family tree. 
Never mind the one that you're arguing for being the one that leads to the pure messianic saviour who has come into the world. So why is Matthew leaving it in? Was to tell us that God works through evil, mess, and sin, time and time again. He chooses and uses sinners for his purposes. He saves the outsiders and the outcasts, the last people that you would expect. For us, this means that God saves the materially down and out, the people on the very outskirts of society. In this list, he chooses to save prostitutes, people from broken homes. But he also chooses to save the morally down and out. The person that you think of when you think of the crudest humour that you know, the most abhorrent views, the worst language, God chooses to save. For me, to be honest, this is just realising that the church-attending, non-believing, upstanding member in the community is just as far away as that person that I know is a regular drug user, lives with his girlfriend, has a mortgage, swears all the time. They are just as far away, and God chooses to save those types of people. For us, that's really helpful to know that you're either in or out. There is no one who is closer or further away. God chooses to save all walks of people. And the last woman that I just want to look at just now, verse 7, you will see Bathsheba. Except you won't see Bathsheba. What you see is David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew is provocatively leaving the name out but saying wife of Uriah, so we remember specifically the situation that went on there. What happened is in 2 Samuel 11, only four chapters after the promises that God made to David, David sees a beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah. And he sleeps with her while Uriah is fighting for David on the front line and for his nation. And where it gets back to David that Bathsheba is pregnant, so he tries to cover it up and he calls Uriah back so that he might sleep with his wife and that no one would be any the wiser. And yet Uriah, being loyal to his king and his fellow soldiers, chooses to sleep in the courtyard. And so David goes to plan B. Seeing Uriah won't sleep with his wife, he sends Uriah to the very front line, leaving him exposed and killed. He tries to cover up his mess, but he can't. And so what this tells us, the wife of Uriah, is that God works through the very worst of people. Even the people we think look great works through the very worst of people and situations. If, he were, if I was to paraphrase this list of names, it would say Jesus comes from the seed of murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, child sacrifices, liars, cheaters, outsiders. And this is not a kind of me damning these sins, but it's to say that look at what God works through. Look at how he is able to bring about his promises through the dirtiest and messiest of situations. 
What we celebrate at Christmas is that we celebrate rest and life and abundance has finally come in God doing as he said to a people who have done nothing which he asked, who have time and time again gone against his ways. Jesus' lineage is a group of broken, broken people. And how we came to faith is a list and group of broken, broken people. And God was faithful to us. He saved us through nothing of our own. Just as I finish, the the analogy of that that loom, that tweed that is made, if you've ever looked at kind of cross-stitching, you'll see that the top looks great. This nativity scene is wonderful. There's this lovely picture. But I wonder if you've ever looked at the underside of it, you will see that there are strands that are strayed. There are strands that aren't connected together. It looks messy underneath this tapestry. But God works with this golden thread that goes right through it, bringing about his promises Even though the colours look like they don't match. Even though it looks like there are many mistakes. Even though it looks like there are broken threads. God is faithful to bring about his promises. God brought about the great rescue for us through worse things than COVID-19. God is faithful in the darkest of times to bring about his king. We don't understand why or how God works in the joys and pains of life. But all we know is that he does. God is faithful to the end. Let me just read Romans 8, 20, 28. A verse that is close to my heart that makes sense of the world that we live in, the hope that we have. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. What it's saying is that when evil and mess come towards us and we don't understand, somehow, some way, God bends it for our good and for his glory. I'll finish with one C.S. Lewis quote, my last one of the year. I swear next year I'll read other books. C.S. Lewis um, quotes, uh, it's a quote from C.S. Lewis in the book The Great Divorce. And it says this, This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. I'll leave the last point for another time. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful to the uttermost. That though we have turned away from you time and time again, 
that though we live in a messy, messy world, though we feel flat, though we feel struggling through life sometimes, we are thankful to remember that you are a God who is faithful to the end. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you more. Help us to live with the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for what he has done for us in rescuing us to yourself. Help us now sing from our hearts how great you are. Amen.